Hi everyone. Uh, my name is Keith Nav, and I'm in the math department. And I'd like to welcome you to the third of our um, STEM talks this fall. We have three of these talks, and this is the last one that we're going to hold this fall. And so STEM stands for uh, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. And today we bring uh, Mr. Jeff Garza, and he is a uh, sensory and consumer insights statistician. So he does some very interesting statistical work, and he works mostly with uh, food and beverage companies, um, really popular ones that you might think of, uh, ConAgra and PepsiCo. So he uses his statistical background and also a lot of mathematics uh, to help these companies make really important decisions about uh, recipes and the way that uh, food tastes, right, things like that. And Jeff here, he has uh, degrees from the University of Nebraska and also Texas Tech University. And I anticipate he's going to talk for about 45 minutes, and then we'll leave um, about uh, maybe 10 to 15 minutes at the end of the talk for Q&A. So um, hopefully you could stick around and ask Jeff some questions, also make a, a, an important connection if you'd like to. So I'll stop talking, and let's give a nice warm welcome to Mr. Jeff Garza. Hi, everybody. Uh, I mean, thank you for coming. Um, the, the title of my talk here is called Numbers Push Food and Drink Choices. Um, it's really about mathematics and statistics within food and beverage companies. And, um, right now, I currently work for myself. And so I'll talk about that a little bit later and kind of how, how that changed from when I was embedded within a company and the differences there and, and how that came to be. Um, so first off, thanks for coming, and thanks for the invitation to speak. Um, a little bit about me, and Keith said this already, but I've been a research and development and sensory insights and consumer insights statistician for almost 15 years in large food and beverage companies. And I started in ConAgra Foods, and we'll kind of go into how I got there. Shifted to PepsiCo, actually based in Barrington, for about six years. And then I ventured off into my own world, mostly because I'm following my wife around now. Um, so I have a MS from Texas Tech and a BS from the University of Nebraska. The organi organizations that I'm involved in are ASTM, the Society for Sensory Professionals, something called Sensometrics, and the American Statistical Association. So um, my journey and how I got to where I am and really into statistics is kind of a mystery for everybody and how they get to where they are. But, but for me, it just kind of fell into place. And, um, my undergraduate years, and I don't even know if I thought about a career. I didn't think about what I was going to do afterwards. I was just going to go to college and I was going to graduate. And I didn't really think about what that meant. And, um, so I kind of went all around the, the majors. I started in chemical engineering. I went to computer science. I spent a while in physics. I kind of went to the education route and kind of focused on math there. Then I, I kind of went straight towards math because I realized everything that I was touching kind of included math to a degree. And so no, no matter what, I was always taking different math classes. And eventually, I ended up taking a couple of mathematics and statistics classes. 
and I had a great professor, and, and, and really that's the whole reason that I decided to pursue, pursue st statistics was because I had an amazing teacher. <laughs> I think that's why a lot of people kind of end up where they end up in school. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the things that I like to think about remembering that are important during college life are, you know, no matter what, there's going to be struggles. So whether it's family, relationships, financial, grades, mm -hmm. um, you're going to need to work hard. Mm -hmm. um, some people have it easier than others, just depending on classes they take or whatever. But I think during this time, you're kind of beginning that journey of learning to really, really work hard. Mm -hmm. Embrace the future. Mm -hmm. Embrace the unknown. Everybody's uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. um, you just kind of got to step forward, jump in, be a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. And I think most importantly, have fun. Mm -hmm. um, enjoy your time in school. <laughs> I kind of wish I was back in school a lot of times. Mm. So what's after college? Mm. Well, for me, I kind of went through, should I get a job? Mm. Should I do an internship? Mm. Should I join the corporate world? Mm. Should I go to professional school, mm. uh, like medical or dental school or something like that? Mm. Um, do graduate school. For me, it fell into place that I went to graduate school. Mm. Um, so my graduate school years. Mm really came to fruition because I got a call one day and I was thinking about graduate school. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I was looking at different potential jobs. And then I learned that they were going to pay me to actually teach classes at a university and I could just continue to go to school. So for me, that sounded like the ideal, ideal solution. But graduate school consisted of hard work. And I, for me, I really learned to work hard in graduate school. Um, I can't say that I was the hardest worker as an undergraduate, and, but once I got to graduate school, I learned that my current work, work ethic wasn't going to cut it. And, um, I learned how to do research. I learned how to, to spend time in the library, to spend time just embedded in books. And, um, it, was, it was about survival. The classes were hard. You've got a group of people that are going through this with you at the same time. So if any of you decide to go to graduate school eventually, I mean, you get a nice core peer group. Mm. Um, there is high stress. I mean, it's mm. probably stress like it hasn't been before. Uh, but again, I, I still had a lot of fun in graduate school. Mm. I had a lot of fun. Mm. And I probably developed some of the best friends that I've, I've ever had in graduate school. Mm. After graduate school, mm, we went through some of the same process. Should I get a job? You could still do an internship type of thing after graduate school, which parlays into a job. Corporate world. Um, can you do teaching? And, and this opens up a world of different levels of teaching once you've done graduate school. And then you could always do more graduate school. At this time, I was kind of getting sick of the school thing. So I decided to go ahead and venture off and, and pursue a job. So for me, there were two final options, and I had to figure out what to do. The, the first one was a great position at the FDA. And really, for me, it was a dream position. It was what I wanted to do. The only things in my mind that I knew that, that statisticians did were pharmaceuticals, banking industry, uh, things like that. Uh, so for me, this was ideal. It was DC, it was a great job. And then when I was getting close to accepting the FDA position, another, another job popped up. And it was this job with ConAgra Foods. 
And I don't know if any of you know anything about Conagra Foods. They do have a small headquarters here in Chicago. Um, actually have for as long as I can remember. <coughs> um, but I didn't know anything about the food world. And their, their headquarters is actually in Omaha, Nebraska with some smaller satellite headquarters. But they make things like Orville Redenbacher popcorn, Marie Callender, Healthy Choice, Swiss Miss. Mm. Um, there's probably Hunt's Ketchup, mm, Golden Mustard. There's all sorts of different products that they make. Um, so for me, it was just one, the food world was a shock because mm, I didn't know anything about it. Mm. Um, that they needed a statistician was a whole nother shock because I had no idea what they would use a statistician for. The, um, I would be part of the sensory and consumer research team. I don't think I even knew that they did research on different food products. I, I had no idea. Now I know lots about this. Um, and I was going to be the only statistician in the company. So this is a huge mega company and I was going to be the only one with an R&D at this company. So to me, that was enticing because that sounded really cool. I was going to be the only one. I learned pretty quickly that that's not necessarily so cool. Um, it, it's hard to be by yourself sometimes and you've got you to figure out how to, how to work that into, uh, to your advantage and be able to do what you need to do. One benefit for me in going to ConAgra Foods was that it was close to home. So my, my home was in Nebraska originally. Um, so in the end, I actually weighed all these things and I ended up going off to Omaha, Nebraska and ConAgra Foods. Um, and in an industry that I had no idea existed, no idea what my role would really be in, but the way they laid it out to me and what I would be doing sounded actually kind of interesting. It was really studying consumers, studying their habits, getting different products in front, front of them and seeing how they react to different tastes, to different textures, to different flavors. Um, and that was interesting to me. Um, so I went into this world that's known as consumer packaged goods. And for shorthand, they say CPG. So for a better picture of what that might be, what's a CPG company? Here's some big ones. A lot of them have ties to Chicago. Craft uh, is based here. Coke, P&G, ConAgra Foods, Unilever, Pepsi. You guys probably see lots of names on here that you know. Um, there's some on here that I don't know. But I've got many friends that work at a lot of these places. And again, many in the Chicago area. So the key areas for statistics within a CPG company is sensory and consumer research, which is about understanding consumer desires and needs and developing products that delight the consumer. There's a research and development wing, and really my role has almost always been embedded in R&D. Um, and sensory and consumer research, if it's not embedded in R&D, it's usually closely tied with it. Um, there's a whole other world called quality assurance. And sometimes I would touch that, many times I wouldn't touch that. Um, there are other opportunities everywhere within a food company. For instance, when I worked at ConAgra Foods, they actually had a trading floor where they would trade commodities, trade stocks, trade futures, all sorts of different things. 
and they would enlist me a lot of times to help them do different modeling or different, different techniques. So I actually got to do something totally different from food within a food company. Um, so some of the important things that you're gonna start to develop now in your academic career and that become really important once you're in the corporate world are just the ability to influence and impact um, and really begin to develop these things now. Your instructors have you doing group work. They have you doing all, all different types of works where you learn to be a true partner. You learn to work with each other. You learn to develop roles when solving problems, to think critically, to be efficient, flexible, and impactful, to help foster creativity and not hinder it. And one of my favorite things that I like to talk about is most people don't think of mathematics and statistics as being creative. Mm. And if I don't mention this, if somehow during the talk I forget to kind of come back to this, mm, this is an easy question to ask me at the end, is how, how can you actually be creative with mathematics and statistics? Mm. Um, so I kind of want to take a step back and just kind of think about the overall business environment. Mm. Um, in corporate America today and, and where mathematics and statistics can help. Most companies, especially food companies, are, are cash-strapped. They've got to efficiently spend their money. They've got to efficiently research their products. Um, the economy its always going to go up and down. There's always going to be cycles here. And we've got to just make sure to keep up with the business decisions, help them make the, the decisions that they need need to make in an appropriate time frame. So there's a huge opportunity for strong um, experiment, experimentation techniques where we can optimize resources, streamline problem solving, obtain actionable results, and be flexible. This is going to parlay into something that I'm going to call design of experiments. And it's a wing of statistics that's not often talked about until maybe graduate school, but it's really all about setting up an experiment to answer the questions that you need to, need to answer. So it's all about research. Um, and then there's always within a company strive for speed, accuracy, and impact. So now talking specifically about sensory science and sensimetrics, which kind of seems like we're making up words here to, to, define, a, to define a job. But this is really my primary interest and my primary focus. So I'm going to show a quick video that I found that I think is a great video. I'm just going to show, let's see if this pops up. Hi there, thank you all for coming in. My name is Roger. I'm gonna be running today's focus group. Uh oh, and it's not up there. <laughs> let's pause that for a second. Uh, let's do this, escape. Do you know how to, huh? Good question. Okay, the products we're gonna be testing today Presentation mode. Yeah, presentation means. 
Fuck, I need to hit escape. just close it. Yeah, just close it. <laughs> there you go. Because of how presentation view we had it up here before. There you go. My name is Roger. I'm going to be running today's focus. Ah. Oh, I know. The products we're going to be testing today is a new line of dressing from Hidden Valley. is a new line okay. of dressing from Hidden Valley Ranch. Awesome. Woo! Awesome! It's Valley Ranch! H-B-O! H-B-O! Okay. Okay, we love your enthusiasm. I love your product, man. I love your product. I'm Linda. I'm Linda. Love that product, man. Okay. Yes. All right, great. Good Linda. stuff. Okay, we're gonna put three new dressings in front of you to taste, and then we just want your feedback. All right, well, they're gonna be awesome, Roger. <laughs> okay. They really are. <laughs> All right, well, let's just wait until we taste them, and then we can discuss. Okay. Okay, let's start with number one. Uh, I'm getting strawberry. <laughs> I'm getting kiwi. I'm get, man, I'm getting a big hit of kiwi. Big hit of kiwi. <laughs> Hi, kiwi. You know what? Man. man. It just tastes like uh, ranch dressing with bacon to me. Okay, that's right. Uh, it's our new bacon ranch dressing. That was really good, Mark. Man, what a palate. That was, you nailed that. That was awesome. It was nice. Yeah, I'm not really tasting the bacon at all. Are you kidding me? It's, in, it's, it's loaded with bacon. The product is loaded with bacon. Come on, it's in the name. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think she's, I mean, she's gonna ruin it, Roger. We, we have this good thing happening, and then you're kind of, you're gonna ruin this for us. Okay. <laughs> she's ruining it, Linda. Okay, so I'm gonna cut that short. Um, and can we get back? Let's see. Let's go. Should come back to presentation view in theory. <laughs> ah, yes. Okay. So now that was kind of an instance of a of a taste test. Mm. And so one of the things I do is I help set up these taste tests. And I set up tons and tons of these taste tests. Mm. And, and in some ways, that's really not that far off from what happens. I can remember at Conagra Foods mm, um, testing pot pies at one point in time. Mm, and I think, I don't remember what exactly we were testing, but each, each person was supposed to take three or four bites from a pot pie. Mm, 
and then make a decision and rate it on different attributes, like how much they like it, what they thought of the appearance, the texture of the chicken or whatever was in there. And so they would get presented four full pot pies and some people would actually come in and consume that whole amount, each four, four whole pot pies, which was just crazy to me. But <coughs> I mean, you will see crazy things like that that happen. Uh, let's see, where are we at? Okay, so what is sens sensory science? Um, sensory science is a scientific discipline that applies principles of experimental design and statistical analysis to the use of human senses. Um, this is a really interesting career that I had no idea existed. Um, and now I've got tons of friends that, that have grown up in this, this career, um, are some of the experts in the field. Um, typically, to get a job like that, mm, um, nowadays you end up with a master's degree in sensory science. Um, there's some key schools that, that really produce some of the best schools. University of Illinois has a great program. Kansas State has a great program. Arkansas, Cornell. Um, so they actually have degrees in sensory science. You can go all the way through a PhD. Um, another realm of that would be like psychometrics. Now, because this is kind of a new area, there's still a lot of people that come up through nutrition, they come through psychology. There's just, there's different ways to get there and be exposed to this. If you're interested in this, feel free to talk to me afterwards. Um, I've got lots of friends that are, that, that are in this side of the business. I work very closely with them. So then that brings me to sensometrics, and that's really the discipline of statistics within the sensory world. So this is me taking their special battery of tests, their, their battery of um, approaches, their special problems, and applying statistics to them. So that is not really a sensometrics degree, but most people come through getting a degree in, in statistics or mathematical statistics. Um, there are some schools that have a bachelor's in statistics. There's not tons of them, though. Uh, mo mostly, you'll end up with a master's or a PhD in stats. So sensory plus statistics, these are two disciplines that are really heavily entwined in the food and beverage world. Uh, my job, as I see it, is really to be one of the lead persons on projects when they're trying to optimize different products. I've got to be a missionary for the sensory scientists, because usually there's not very many of them. So I've kind of got to act like a sensory person, but answer stats questions. I expect the people that I work with, the sensory folks, to be missionaries for statistics. So when I'm not able to be there, I'm constantly kind of teaching them how to ask questions, how to, how to really get at what I'm going to need to help design the, the right experiment to answer the, the key question. Um, really always striving to help others achieve their personal and professional goals, so really trying to grow each other. Um, so statistical impact, what does a statistician really bring to the table? This is a wordy slide, but really it's about identifying consumer needs and consumer desires, and finding efficient ways to do that, and partnering with the R&D folks, the sensory folks, and um, really working together to meet the greater business objective drive creation, development, and improvement of key products, uh, utilize the ideal combination of experimental designs and other statistical tools to systematically transform your flavors and products, and 
look for opportunities to uncover analytical and sensory drivers of consumer liking. Uh, really understand emotions. So you may not think about this, but, but a lot of products have an emotional quality to them. Like you might like the pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks every fall, right? And it, once, once Labor Day comes, it goes through your mind, I need to go to Starbucks because they're going to have a pumpkin spice latte. I mean, that's kind of an emotional tie, right? That's not something you want in the springtime necessarily, or maybe you do, I don't know. But, but once, once fall hits, you, you think pumpkin spice latte. And they just had an issue crop up where they, their eggnog latte, they decided to discontinue it. But there were consumers that screamed and stood up. They signed some, some requests. There were tons and tons of them, so they basically forced Starbucks to release the eggnog, eggnog latte again. So it's not in the store now. They're they're going to um, within the week, I think. Um, <clears throat> so I also want to leverage a vast array of tools. So in my world, there's a lot of quantitative. There's a lot of qualitative. There's a lot of interviewing people and talking to them. And many people think that you can't apply statistics there. But even in that role. What I want to make sure the researcher is able to do is to set up the test so that they can really get at the questions they want to answer. So make sure they show them the products in a specific order. Make sure they don't bias them or allow the other consumers to bias, bias the other ones in the room. So there's all sorts of different things that kind of come into play. One other quick note is there's something called descriptive sensory analysis. If you hear people describe wine or beer, they'll list out different aromatic, aromatic qualities. They'll be like toasty or woody or different, different attributes. A lot of times those are coming from a descriptive panel, which is a group of people that are specifically trained in the different attributes of a product. And they'll rate it and rate, rate the product on different things. Kind of like Melissa McCarthy, I guess she was mm. rating ranch, bacon ranch mm. dressing, but mm. she missed the bacon. It, she thought it had strawberry. Mm. Um, so one of the key things that I do is help develop a research plan. So in that, I need to be very proactive to plan ahead, to really think about the different outcomes that might happen, explore different what-if scenarios and establish plans to attack those what-if scenarios. Because in research, you don't really know what's going to happen at the end. So you've got to be able to react to that pretty quickly, especially in a business environment where you need to take advantage of anything you learn. Um, there are always, always, always unanswered questions. The research cycle is usually presented as being kind of a circular path where you conjecture, you construct a design around that, and you construct or execute an experiment, and then you perform some kind of analysis. Um, clear objectives can reduce the chance of analysis paralysis, because even in these big companies, what happens is they get stuck in the circle. And they want to just keep researching and researching and researching. But at some point in time, you've got to make a decision. You've got to launch the new pudding flavor. You've got to launch the new yogurt flavor. You've got to launch a completely new category, which happened with Chobani a few years ago, right? And they, they launched Greek yogurt, which wasn't really new. 
but to the to the consumers it was new right it wasn't such a big thing now you walk into the grocery store you see almost a whole aisle of nothing but greek greek yogurt starbucks is another example of that they you know, late 90s, Starbucks really wasn't as big as it is now. Now it's everywhere. There's a Starbucks every three blocks, it seems like. Um, but they systematically changed how people think about coffee. If you talk to your parents, you know, they grew up on coffee out of a can. Maxwell House, they, you know, Folgers, uh, which I think one of those is by Kraft, maybe both of those. Um, but that's very different now. Most of us don't buy coffee in a can. Mm. Uh, so my toolbox, and there's a lot of things, and I just put a few of them in here, um, is very specialized to the food and beverage industry consumer packaged goods. Um, there's something called discrimination testing where we're just trying to identify if there's a difference between products. Um, maybe we've changed out an ingredient, like maybe Starbucks is change their pumpkin flavor and the pumpkin spice because they found a cheaper way to produce it. And but we need to make sure that the consumers don't know it's different. It's still got to taste the same, right? And, um, that happens with every product that's out there. And it's always a goal to do some sort of cost reduction but not make an impact on the consumer. Uh, there's always preference testing. How do you do the preference testing? Do you do it in a lab setting? Do you do it at home? Um, there's something called penalty analysis, descriptive, descriptive sensory, uh, category appraisal, driver's analysis, segmentation. One thing that I like to talk about a lot is segmentation because it's, it's where I really play a key role. And one of the things that I try to do when I have consumers evaluate a set of products is I try to see if groups of them are reacting differently to different sets of products. So within statistics, this is called cluster analysis. Um, some good examples of this would be chocolate. Some people like dark chocolate, some people like milk chocolate. Mm. Um, so how do you test mm, different chocolates? Mm. Your, your typical Hershey's chocolate bar that says dark chocolate on it really isn't very dark. Mm. It's, it's almost more of a milk chocolate blend. Mm. But they've got to figure out that, mm, that level where they can still bring in people that are going to buy the product. Mm but not, they need them to still like the product, so they don't want them to, to pull away from it. Many, many, many categories have segmentation in them. I can think of bread. Some people like white, some people like wheat. Now they've got these wheat breads that actually are supposed to taste like white, and so they've ground the wheat down to very small part particles, but they're trying to, to balance things out so that they don't that the white bread likers don't just totally break off from the category. They want to bring them in. Um, whole milk. Uh, Starbucks is a good example. Usually your latte, if you order a latte, is made with 2% milk. Um, it tastes very, very different if you get whole milk. And there's a health consequence to that, right? Um, but the flavor is very, very different. And if you've never tried that before, I suggest just trying it sometime. Order it with whole milk. It's a very different experience. Mm. Um, and some people really love it. Mm. Uh, 
So the, the area that I really want to focus on, there's some different things listed here, um, but is really this area called DOE, and that's design of experiments. And, and it's a key research tool of mine. Here's a, a great little far side cartoon where they say, I cannot determine from these tests which is more irritating, Celine Dion singing or fingernails being dragged across the chalkboard. Mm. And this is a good example of what I try to do. I try to help them separate these things out. So are they really reacting to the, the nails across the, cro the chalkboard, or are they reacting to the singing, mm, Celine Dion's in this case? Mm. But there's a way to structure the test mm, so that you can actually answer those questions. It's not like this, where you've got three people sitting there and doing both at the same time. Um, but So what is design of experiments? Mm. DOE is a systematic series of tests in which purposeful changes are made to input factors so that one can identify causes for significant changes in the output and optimize accordingly. It's really all about structure, structuring your tests so you can answer your key questions. So one interesting thing here is this graph right here is actually something called a mixture design. And in food and beverage, this design comes up very, very often because many times we're changing the quantity of something. And if we change the quantity of something, it, it impacts something else in a food product. And so for instance, um, a good example is orange juice. Mm. Tropicana orange juice is typically made with Valencia oranges, Hamlin oranges, and maybe, maybe there's a stored Hamlin that they're using from last year in the orange juice. Um, but what they do is they want to get as much Valencia in there, but they may not be able to afford to put, make the whole thing Valencia. Mm -hmm. So what they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, if I increase this Valencia juice, I've got to increase these other, or I've got to decrease these other two juices because it's still got a sum to 20 ounces or whatever. So how do I design an experiment around that where I can still identify mm -hmm. the maximums, the minimums, how to make liking the best as it possibly can be? Mm -hmm. And in the food world, that comes up all the time. If you think of cake mix, if you think of pudding, if you think of a, a beverage, mm. those are all mixtures of things. Mm. And so you've got to use a special class of designs to kind of go after that. Mm. <clears throat> um, in my world, there are also two different big classes of designs. Mm. The top one there is really, in this case, going after chocolate. So we might have two different types of chocolate, and we're going to vary them. Mm. And we're going to test them with consumer, get their reactions, we're going to analyze them, and then try to optimize it for a consumer. So you might end up with a nice little graph like that. Rarely does it end up that pretty, but in this nice example, it's like the textbook world where it's perfect. Um, the other way would be something called a design for perception. And in this case, I might want to understand a category of products. So maybe. Um, Coffee is a good example. If I've got, if I want to do mochas and I want to study the world of mochas out in, in our consumer world, what we might do is have a Starbucks mocha, we might have a caribou coffee mocha, we might have some local coffee houses mochas. We might want to really sh see how those things stretch on different dimensions, which some are going to be more chocolatey, some are going to be more coffee flavored. So what we've got to try to do is translate that into something we can study. 
So we want to really stretch the space there, test those with consumers, and then try to optimize within. Typically, that type of test, you'll find an optimum. So you might find the optimum milky to chocolatey flavor, but then you've got to take that back and work with the R&D staff to really go after a true design experiment to really vary the things that they can control. Um, so I'm going to cruise through some of these things. So there are some common myths that, that people bring up. And they, one of them is, is it's too early for statistics. And my answer to that is it's never too early. I think a good structured problem solving attack is usually thinking about things statistically or at least structuring them statistically. Uh, in my world, I'll get a lot of data sets where, where people have run a test already and they've taken this, we'll worry about the statistics once we get the data back. And that's usually uh, a sign to me that it's gonna be a kind of a pain to execute on my end. Um, there aren't any interactions. In the food and beverage world, almost any ingredient you put in a product interacts in some way, shape, or form. And for some of you that love to cook at home, you should know that. Mm. Um, a DOE encompasses too many experiments. Mm. So a lot of people think designing a test, mm, it's going to become too big. In actuality, designing the test mm, and taking a stats approach to it mm, is going to allow you to do less experiments. Mm. Uh, this is a common thing that I have to fight against in, in the corporate world. Mm. Um, also, there's a there's the idea that we can question everything out of consumers. Um, the hard part with that is it's very troublesome. So like if you ask a consumer, do they want the healthy product? They always say, yes, of course I want to eat healthy. They'll even say they, they do eat healthy. When you present them, you know, different cheeseburger options or something, they'll, they'll almost always go towards McDonald's or, or, or something like that. They'll pick out the one that, in our eyes, isn't necessarily the most healthy. Um, so there's a kind of fight within each of us about what we want to be versus what we actually are, what we actually do want. And, and so sometimes quite trying to question things out of consumers directly kind of just becomes troublesome. Um, so again, why a design of experiments? It's structured and helps us to understand the products better through their interactions. Gives us a historical understanding that we can react to changes in the marketplace, um, changes in pricing of ingredients, and really try to maximize any profit that we want, and truly identify cause and effects. Um, so there are some key steps to creating a good DOE, and really, in this is identifying the problem, establishing clear goals, getting all the ideas on the table, trying to figure out which phase of the research process you're in. Um, there's, some, there's three key phases that we like to talk about in the stats world, and that would be a screening phase, an optimization phase, and then a confirmation phase. Screening is typically when you're, you've got these unknown variables. So you may have all sorts of different ingredients that you want to try when you're making a cake. Mm. Um, but you don't know which ones actually have an impact on the final product. Mm. So we might, we're going to attack that with a special class of designs. Mm. If we know certain things impact a product, mm, like a PepsiCo or a Coke is always on 
on the mission to identify the next great sweetener, right? So they're always studying these sweeteners. And they may know, they, they may have different combinations of these sweeteners that are going to minimize aftertaste or minimize the bitterness. Um, they may know the impact of each of these, but they, but they may not know the best combination of them. So we're in a different phase there, and that's where we're just trying to optimize the best combination. Um, let's see. So my favorite designs, if you guys ever come across these in, in the world or in the future, factorial designs, uh, RSM is a response surface design, and mixture designs. Those are just different classes of designs. The keys to success in using these designs are knowing your constraints, knowing your budget, engaging the proper personnel, establishing clear objectives, and don't get stuck in that analysis paralysis. You don't, you've got to be able to make a decision at some point in time. Um, and this goes with any, any research project. And that's not always easy to, to end, your, end the research, to be the person to stand up there and say, OK, let's launch this product. Because um, then all the responsibility falls on your shoulders. And you're going to get your finger, the finger pointed at you if it, things don't go right. So now, I just kind of want to quickly talk about life as a consultant. For me, it's really not that different from the corporate world. And the reason I say that, and this isn't true for, for all consultants, but, but for me, it's not, it's not very different. And the reason that is is because in the corporate world, I was usually the only statistician, or I had a group of statisticians that worked under me. And, but we were the go-to group. So anything that kind of came up as a problem where they thought we might be able to help them, they would come to us. They would, they'd pursue us. They'd sit down with us. We'd talk with them about different approaches. Um, different applications, different, just different ways to go about and solving the problems they were after. Um, really, in the consultant world, for me, it's the same. I just get calls from all my old friends that I used to work with at ConAgra or PepsiCo or wherever, who tend to be all over the place now at all these other different companies. Um, so I really just get to do the same work that I did before but work with all the people that I liked to work with before. And the people that I didn't like to work with, I can like charge them way more and then hope that I don't have to work with them. But so far, that hasn't worked out real well. I still end up kind of stuck working with people I don't want to work with. Um, <coughs> some key, key rules or key, key things about how I got there, though, and, and I think these are key for you guys and really anybody in, in the corporate world or whatever you decide to do in the future. Don't burn your bridges. I mean, you're going to you have professors, you have teachers that you remain in contact with for maybe the rest of your life. It may not seem like that now, but, but I still contact some of my old professors. I contact my old colleagues. I ask them for ideas, um, uh, different ways to approach things. Um, know your strengths. Know your weaknesses. You're not going to be good at everything, right? Nobody's good at everything. But know what you are good at, know, where, know what you're going to need help with, and kind of know who to reach out to to get that help. Uh, identify your key partners. Always think ahead. And, and again, don't be afraid to reach out for help. Even when I was an undergraduate, I always said this, the smartest kids that I worked with in high school at the time were the ones that actually went to the tutors and 
reached out for help right away when they got stuck. Mm. The same thing's true mm. um, in the corporate world. Mm. I mean, don't depend solely on yourself, right? Mm. You've got to be efficient. Mm. So I think, <laughs> what time is it, Keith? <laughs> And thanks for listening. Yes. So if you have questions, raise your hand. I'll come to you with the mic so everyone <coughs> can hear you. And feel free to ask me anything. I, I, even when I give, give talks, typically I say, interrupt me. But this isn't the right venue for that. But mm, I, I like answering questions. Mm. So how can statistics be creative? Oh, okay, yeah, you took my easy question. Um, I talked about how the FDA was kind of my dream job. And uh, a lot of statisticians go towards pharmaceuticals. Mm. Um, one of the things about pharmaceuticals is that how you design your tests and how you set up your tests, mm, you have to do it and how the government tells you to do it. And you, you have a little bit of freedom, but it's really very little. Huh? In my world, in this food and beverage world, I get different scenarios really every day. Huh? And so I have to think about different ways that I might study it. And, and, and a lot of my tests, like none of them look the same. Like, I mean, some similar structures and whatnot, but I get to really think about and doing things differently using all sorts of different designs or coming up with my own designs on how to, how to structure things. So I really get to be creative almost every day. I mean, how I present results, um, how, I, how I put together the whole path, because it's really not just one test. It's like a whole series of tests. And again, we've got to cut it at some point and make a, make a business decision. But you really have this flexibility that, that I didn't really understand was there until I got into the job. I don't know if that makes sense. but. You might say you're lying, that's not creative. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, uh, I'm just wondering, so once you have a small focus group test a product, I'm just wondering how you take that data and extrapolate it into a wide community of people. Uh, focus groups are tough. Mm -hmm. um, Typically, you don't. At least the best folks don't. You're going to use that focus group for a very specific reason. Um, a lot of times, one of the key goals is just to get language in that people are using to describe the products. In. Um, but there are some other benefits to being able to talk to a consumer. If you, if you put them in a test where they're just answering a questionnaire or, or selecting answers on a computer screen, you, you don't really get how they're thinking about the product. Um, so a focus group moderator, so I've got lots of good friends that are moderators for focus groups. They have to be very, very good at doing what they're doing, not, not biasing people. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. It's kind of a special skill to make sure that you're really getting something useful out of a focus group. Um, one of the best people I know that does qualitative research so the focus group settings really tries to set, her, set up her focus groups like a statistical experiment. Mm. Um, so she presents them things mm, to respond to in certain orders. She presents them 
the lows and the highs in, in, a, in a specific plan of attack yeah. and, and really tries to do it like a statistical design. And she's been very successful doing that. And that's hard. Mm. Good questions. Other questions? All right, again, uh, I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, let's say thank you to Jeff one more time. And if you'd like to stick around for a couple of minutes, you can uh, definitely talk to Jeff. He's a nice guy. He doesn't bite. Um, but thank you again. Uh, have a great day. <laughs>